You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly. everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 163. This week I would like to thank everyone who has supported this podcast either now or in the past over on patreon.com slash history of the great war. You've helped make this whole thing happen and it looks like it's going to be going on for quite some time into the future. So thank you. Last episode, we wrapped up our story of Operation Michael, the first of what would eventually be five German offensives in the spring and summer of 1918. This episode, we will continue past Operation Michael, and and to do so, we will split this episode really into two different pieces. The first of these will be to, to discuss the end of Michael and the preparations for Operation Georgette, the second German attack. The second part of the episode will be covering the events of Georgette. An important thing to remember when thinking about Michael and Georgette is how close together they were from a timeline perspective. Michael would officially wrap up on about April 5th, and Georgette would begin on April 12th. That's a really fast turnaround, even when you consider the fact that troops had been moving north for the effort since March 22nd. Michael had been much more costly than the Germans had expected. The original plan had been to move 30 assault divisions north to take part in the attack in Flanders once Michael was complete, but on April 12th there were only about 11 available. This would result in vast alterations to the original Operation George, which would later be renamed to Georgette. It probably would have been wise for the Germans to reconsider their entire plan at this point. They had launched their first attack and it had not gone completely according to plan. However, even though the Germans were in their best position in the West since 1914, negotiations were still not an option. The Allied leaders were just not beaten down enough yet, and so the only option for the German army was to try again. While the Allies were not considering themselves defeated, there had been reactions, and one of the biggest stories of spring and summer 1918 was the rise of Foch and the continued increase in his power and authority over the Allied armies. A big step in this story occurred on April 3rd. It was on that day that there was a meeting of all the major politicians and generals from the French, British, and American armies. 
At this meeting, Foch would say that if he was to fulfill the objective set forth for him at the earlier meeting we discussed last episode, he was going to need more power. If you remember, at that time, Foch had been given the authority to coordinate the various armies, with the word coordinate being very important. But now he wanted the power to initiate, plan, and direct operations. This would make him truly the commander of all of the armies. There was generally unanimous agreement from those present that this is what was needed, although Haig was far less enthusiastic than he had been the week before, since it appeared that the point of greatest danger for the British had now passed. With the agreements made at the April 3rd meeting, for the first time there would be a single person who could direct the war effort along the entirety of the Allied Western Front. This also included American units. Up to this point, Pershing and the Americans had constantly been fighting to keep their army together and separate, but they had eventually been convinced that it was necessary to move some large American formations into the Entente armies. This meant that American divisions and corps would maintain their commanders and their American officers, but they could be placed into French armies where they would take orders from French commanders. This was an important step to getting the Americans really into the war, instead of just endlessly preparing for action. While Foch has played a small role in our story up to this point, now that he has fully risen to prominence, we should probably take a bit to review his views on the conflict and his future plans. Foch had started the war firmly ensconced in the French offensive school of warfare, and he never really shifted from that mindset. He would constantly push for more attacks when he had first commanded a corps, then an army, then an army group. However, after the Battle of the Somme, when, where he had commanded the French troops in that battle, Foch had been moved first to Italy and then through a series of administrative posts. He was really good with the politicians, which greatly helped his eventual rise to command in 1918. And one of Foch's viewpoints, which separated him from some of his contemporaries, was his view on the overall goal of the fighting. Sure, he wanted to defeat Germany like everyone else but he did not believe that unconditional surrender was required, and in fact should not be pursued, since it would continue the fighting far longer than was necessary. He would tell Edward House, the emissary from the United States, that, quote, I'm not waging war for the sake of waging war. If I obtain an armistice with conditions we wish to impose upon Germany, I am satisfied. Once that object is attained, nobody has the right to shed one more drop of blood, end quote. During their Versailles negotiations, Foch would be a constant advocate for some very specific pieces of the treaty, especially disarmament and the usage of the Rhineland as a buffer zone between Germany and France. However, back in 1918, after he was given more power on April 3rd, one of his first moves was to strip the southern zone of the French front of reserves. American units were brought in to take up some of the slack, especially in the south, where very little action was expected, and this allowed more French units to be brought north, in anticipation of meeting more German attacks, or, if Foch had his way, launching Allied offensives. It's difficult to discuss Foch's ideas and his leadership without discussing his relationship with Patan. To put it simply, the two Frenchmen would never get along very well. They disagreed heavily on the best way to fight the war, the best way to win it, and in early 1918, they disagreed on what they believed would happen next. Patan was still convinced that the Germans were planning an attack to the east of Paris, with the goal of capturing the city. Foch disagreed and believed that the next German attack would come in the north. In reality, they were both kind of right in a way. The next German attack would be in the north, in Flanders, but then they would launch one in the south. Even though both of them were correct in this instance, there was still continued to be friction between the two highest-ranking French officers for the rest of the war. 
I've mentioned the Americans a few times now, and the American Expeditionary Force was in an interesting position when the Germans attacked on March the 21st. There were a huge number of American troops in Europe, around a quarter of a million men. However, even at the points of greatest crisis during Operation Michael, they were not involved in the fighting, which was a bit frustrating for the British and French. The key to the entire situation was that Pershing had been insisting for almost a year that American troops would only fight under American commanders in an American army. It was a matter of national prestige, and it was simply non-negotiable. Then, when the Supreme War Council was originally created, the Americans had specifically not sent a military representative, but instead a political one. This was done to make it clear that the America was not a member of the British and French alliance, and was simply an associated power, which was sort of like a weird political line that they wanted to keep, it didn't end up really mattering that much. While Pershing continued to keep his distance from even the suggestion that American troops be moved into the other armies, he would eventually come around. It was clear that the British and French were in a tight spot, and so in late March during a meeting with Patan, Pershing would say that, quote, I have come to tell you that the American people would consider it a great honor for our troops to be engaged in the present battle. I ask you for this in their name and my own. At this moment, there is no other question but to fighting, infantry, artillery, aviation. All that we have is yours. Use them as you wish. More will come, in numbers equal to the requirements. This would then lead to Pershing voluntarily agreeing that Foch's authority extended to American troops at that April the 3rd meeting, which meant that the American Expeditionary Force was finally in the war. While the Americans were in the war, they would not be involved in the next German attack, and when looking at their next attack, the Germans were going to have to try and replicate the situation from March the 21st that had allowed them to be so successful um, on that day. These specific conditions would be challenging to recreate, as shown by the attacks on March the 28th. During these attacks, which were a scaled-down version of the originally planned Operation Mars, the Germans had launched an attack by 29 divisions after a well-prepared artillery bombardment. However, the barrage had been less effective, and the fog that had been so helpful during Michael was absent. On top of all these problems, they were also attacking far better defenses, and when the infantry went forward, they did not produce the expected results. On March the 28th, that attack would be more indicative of what the Germans could expect to experience on other areas of the front as they moved their attacks up and down the line, and it was not a good sign. While this was a worrying trend up at the front, another one was happening back at German High Command. It was around this time that Ludendorff started a spiral that would continue until he was dismissed from command. This spiral would revolve around a fixation on the growing American army and the need to push faster and harder to end the war before it could become fully available. Then, once this was impossible for the German army to attack in the west, the spiral would then send him into a deep depression and even greater desperation, an important part of our story for pretty much the rest of 1918. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
But back to Georgette for a second. It was originally known as Operation George, and the original plan for George was to shift from Michael to Flanders and then launch two attacks, George I and George II. If you remember, these attacks had been considered as an alternative to Michael, but the ground in Flanders had been too wet that early in the year. After Michael became the first attack, the George attack changed into two attacks, both which involved 30 divisions or more. These would hit the British while their reserves were down in the south, and it would hopefully knock the British back into the sea. Before Michael was complete, German troops and guns were already moving north, and when that attack came to an end, Ludendorff set George in motion. But now it was different. Instead of 30 or more assault divisions, the German army would only have 11 to throw into this attack, and this meant that the plans had to change in a pretty drastic way. It had to get a lot smaller. This meant that instead of two large attacks, there would just be one, and it would be much smaller than either of them, and so it was named Georgette. Even though the attack would be much smaller, Ludendorff was convinced that it had to happen soon, before the British could recover, so he accepted the reduced resources and objectives to allow for the attack to kick off as quickly as possible. Of note here, as always, the names for this battle are a complete mess. Everybody calls it something different. For the French, it would be the Third Battle of Flanders, for the British, the Battle of Lys, and the official name on the German side was the Fourth Battle of Flanders. So yes, we have a battle here. One of its, on one side, it's called the Third Battle of Flanders. On the other side, it's called the Fourth. And on one side, it, they don't even reference Flanders at all. It couldn't be more confusing. So I'm just going to call it Operation Georgette, just like I did with Michael. The attack would take place to the south of the Ypres salient, on a front narrower than during Operation Michael, with the main objective being the city of Hazebrook. This was the most important rail junction on the northern side of the British front, similar to the importance of Amiens in the south. It could, if it could be captured, then the British supply situation all along the front would be heavily impacted. The attack would be executed by the 4th and 6th armies, with a combined total of 28 divisions. Many of these divisions had already participated in Michael, which meant they were not completely fresh. Brickmuller was also brought north to the 6th Army to help prepare the artillery, but he would only have about 9 days to prepare for the attack, unlike the 7 weeks that he had before Michael. There was also less artillery this time, only about 2,000 guns, about half of which were of the heavy variety. And because of the slower number of guns, both armies would not be attacking at the same time, instead they would attack at two different times. The 6th Army would launch their attack on April 9th, while the 4th Army would go the next day, after the guns had been repositioned to assist them. While there were some problems for the Germans to overcome, they still greatly outnumbered the British forces, as there would just be eight divi British divisions in the line. To make matters worse, five of the six divisions in the front line had been involved with Michael, and they were not fully back up to strength. Then there was the Portuguese division. Portugal had entered the war in 1916, and had sent two divisions to the Western Front. Since that time, the government of Portugal had changed to one far less supportive of the country being in the war, and so the Portuguese divisions were not well supplied, not well supported, they'd sort of just been hung out to dry. In fact, the first division had already been pulled out of the line, and the second division was scheduled to do so the same day that the attack began. 
The British were so weak in this area because this sector had been pretty quiet for almost the entire war and had, seen, and had been seen as a good place to put divisions while they recuperated, or in this case, a good place to put token divisions from an ally so that they could take part in the war without really taking part in the war. The British did know that there were German troops moving north after Michael, but they assumed that the attack would come in a different location, either to the north around Ypres or to the south near Vimy Ridge. The attack would begin at 4.15am on April 9th, with nine divisions attacking on an 11-mile front. They were once again gifted with the presence of heavy fog, and the artillery fire would fall hardest right on those poor Portuguese troops, who were already looking for their relief. When the fire came down on these men, they broke and ran, and when the German attack went forward, they experienced little resistance. Throughout the day, the advance would continue until they advanced over five miles on a front ten miles wide. Haig would once again call to the French and ask for assistance. He also started moving the Second Army, fresh from their tour in Italy and under the command of General Plumer, towards the attack to try and stem the tide. On the next day, the German 4th Army would attack, again under the cover of fog, and again a German attack resulted in a steady advance. Now the two German armies were advancing together, and on the second day they would take 11,000 prisoners. Once again, another German attack was off to a pretty good start. It was under these circumstances that Haig would issue what is almost certainly his most famous order. It would go on to inform the name of many books on this topic, and it is generally widely quoted. The order would say, quote, Many amongst us are now tired. To those, I would say that victory will belong to the side which holds out the longest. The French army is moving rapidly and in great force to our support. There is no course open to us but to fight it out. Every position must be held to the last man. There must be no retirement. With our backs to the wall and believing in the justice of our cause, each one of us must fight on to the end. The safety of our homes and the freedom of mankind alike depend upon the conduct of each one of us at this critical moment. End quote. While the order is a great read, and just recording it now, it definitely has a good effect, it was almost universally derided at the front. Soldiers from the lowliest private to General Plumer himself knew that holding every position was almost certainly not the best course of action, and I mean Haig knew it as well. But the order played real well back on the home front, which was always important, and I'm sure it looked great in the papers the next day. In reality, Haig was fully aware that his army had all kinds of options available to it, but manufacturing a narrative of great danger was a good way to make a possible British victory an even larger one. On April 12th, the attack would continue, with both armies continuing their advance. Then for the next several days, they would do much of the same. After Plumer arrived, he would begin to pull troops back all along this area of the front. His concern was that if the line was broken, then certain positions would be very vulnerable to encirclement. The most critical of these was in the north, and they included almost all of the gains made by the British in the long and costly Third Battle of Ypres. All the ground gained during that attack near the tip of the Ypres salient was even now being abandoned, and for the first to go was the areas in front of Passchendaele, which had seen so much blood during the last weeks of the attack. The concern for these positions was that they could be cut off from the south, and so the British defenses were brought back close to Ypres itself, so that the city could be evacuated quickly. It also had the side benefit of freeing up some British troops that could be moved south to assist in the defense. French troops would also begin to arrive during this period of the attack. 
Haig had gotten more French troops by agreeing to send tired British divisions to the south to help cover quiet sectors on the French area of the front in exchange for French units. This was another important step in getting the two armies properly intermingled. Even though the French were sending troops, they would arrive a bit after the point of greatest danger. The German attacks were already running into the same problem that they had found during Operation Michael, although on a smaller scale. The biggest problem was once again supplies. In this area, there were not very many roads, and those that were present all ran north-south, not east-west, like the Germans required. This meant that supplies were hard to come by for the forward units, which made them more likely to stop the attack to partake in captured goods. All these difficulties and the increasing resistance from the growing number of British and French troops caused the attack to grind to a halt on April 19th, without the capture of any important areas, like Hazebrook. While the main Georgette attacks were at an end, various smaller attacks along the front continued. I'm going to focus on just two of these that were made in the last weeks of April, one in the south near Amiens, and another in the north in the Georgette salient. But there were numerous small attacks like these two, but for our story, these two were the most important. But I just want you to remember that all along the front, sort of between these major German efforts, there were lots of smaller efforts by just a few divisions at various places to try and gain some small tactical advantage. In the south, even though most of the excess German troops had already moved north, they would launch an attack with nine divisions against Amiens on April 24th. The goal was to capture the high ground along Villa Bretonneux, which would give the Germans the ability to bombard Amiens more directly, and would also give more security to the German troops in the south. This attack would be one of the first German attacks to feature their A7V tanks. These huge vehicles with a crew of 18 were never available in great numbers, but there would be 13 used in this attack. They would have some initial success, and the Germans were able to make a good initial push, even capturing the village of villers bretonneux itself and some of its surroundings. However, British tanks and guns arrived to neutralize the German tanks, and then an Australian counterattack would be launched later in the day, resulting in the Germans losing most of their gains. In the north, another operation was launched, this time with the goal of capturing Mont Kemmel. Mont Kemmel was a hill that rose just about 300 feet over the Flanders Plain. It had good observation of its surrounding area, and as such was an important position. French troops had just taken over its defense from the British, and the French were even preparing to launch an attack against some nearby German positions. As the attack was preparing on April 25th, it ran directly into a pre-attack bombardment for the Germans. With such a start, it is unsurprising that the Germans were going to go on to capture the summit of Mount Kemmel in just a few hours. But then the Germans just stopped. The way was open to the next set of hills, which were just as important as Kemmel itself, but the German orders were explicit that they were to stop and wait for further orders before they went on beyond Kemmel. This was a change, but it was an effort by Ludendorff and the German commanders to prevent their troops from advancing too far and then just getting counterattacked back to where they started. In this case, it greatly reduced the possible German successes, because while the German troops were milling around on Kemmel for most of the day, the British and French were rushing in troops to the defense. When the Germans finally did try to attack again, they were stopped. There would be a few more attacks in Flanders before April was over, but they would be even less successful than this attack on Mount Kemmel itself. When Georgette and the other attacks in Flanders, like the attack on Mont Kemmel, were over, the Germans once again found themselves in position of a good amount of new territory, but not much else. Just like in the south, where the Germans had been stopped just short of Amiens, in the north they had been stopped just a few miles short of Haysburg. 
In the month since Michael had started, they had suffered another 326,000 casualties, with the British suffering 260 and the French 107,000. The Germans had also extended their lines once again, and while the Allies also had to man these new areas, they were able to shift troops around the front to make up for some of the shortages, especially with American troops now available. One area that would become weaker with all of these movements was on the French area of the front. The Germans noted that so many French troops were now in the north, so the French had to be weaker in the south, and this resulted in Ludendorff ordering Crown Prince Wilhelm to prepare for an attack in Champagne. While the next attack would be launched, and we will cover the attack next episode, the German army was now at a point where it would never be the same again. And it was no longer just a physical problem, or a numerical problem, or an age problem, it was becoming a mental problem. And I will let Colonel Thayer of the 9th Reserve Corps explain. Quote, they had put too much hope that this great blow in March would end the war. Therefore, they had once more summoned together all of their courage and all their energy. Now the disappointment is here, and it is great. I hope you will join me next episode, as our story of the German Spring Offensives continue. This time we shift to the south, where the Germans will attack the French on their way to Paris.